0: Welcome to 2024 for the FMI Built-In Podcast. I'm Scott Winstead, FMI Consulting President. I'm really excited about my conversation today with Jay Bowman. Jay is a senior partner in our strategy practice, the head of our market research function, a highly sought-after speaker, and a return guest to the podcast. In our conversation, Jay talks about our recently released 2024 market overview, as well as what he thinks will drive the market for the next 12 to 24 months. Good morning, Jay. Welcome back to the show. As you know, we recently released our 2024 market overview. Curious how you would summarize the key takeaways for those that haven't had a chance to dig into it yet.
1: I think it's a good question. I think part of it is what have we seen sort of in the past couple of years. So I think that's important as you set up what the outlook is for 2024. Because if you just looked at our current forecast, it's about a 2% increase which doesn't sound all that great. I mean, it's obviously better than it being in negative territory, but it's relatively flat. But this comes off of two years of double digit growth. So we had you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12% in 2021, and then again in 2022, this is like the continuation of almost really a three-year trend. So we're talking about a lot of growth over the last couple of years. So 2% is really just, in essence, hold and serve at a really high level historically.
0: Jay, you mentioned holding serve or the 2024 may be a bit more of a flat market. In your view, how should ENC firms behave in a flat market?
1: So when we talk about a flat market now, I think the first thing we have to kind of establish is we're talking about the overall market, right? So in total, so like all of non-residential building or all of non-building or heavy civil being relatively flat. But the biggest takeaway or, or the thing that I would say, contractors need to think about is how am I going to manufacture growth in a market that is not providing it for me, sort of generally speaking, right? So we've all heard of the term, you know, rising tide, you know, lifts all boats. Well, there is a subsegment of the AEC industry that organizations, their futures are totally dependent on what the market's doing. If the market improves, they improve. If the market contracts, well, their revenue contracts as well. But for another subsegment, and I hope that it's the larger subsegment, I generally think it is, they recognize that they can't be dependent on that. It's sort of like The, you know, if you think like a a cupcake, it's a bad analogy, but, you know, you you got the cake and the icing and then the sprinkles on top. That's like the economy. If the economy is rising, it's just the extra sprinkles. But I got to be really thinking about where am I manufacturing that growth? So it's important then to look at it as not non-residential building or heavy civil construction, but the individual components of that. Because, I mean, I know it's like a tired, broken record when I say bull markets and bear markets coexist. But it is, how do I shift, if you want to call it a portfolio, around to put more of my efforts, more of my investment in those areas that will continue to see growth and limit my exposure on those areas where there isn't going to be, and probably contraction, to, in essence, manufacture the growth for my
0: organization. So just focus more on that. How would you describe the impact inflation's had on construction spending?
1: Well, I think we generally think of inflation and the impact on construction, and when I want to say generally, I mean how most people typically think about it in the conversations I have, is that a dollar is obviously not worth as much as it used to be. So you might look at a forecast and say, okay, well, gosh, it looks like it's up a whole lot, but you know, how much of that increase is really part of what inflation has caused versus what someone might term as like true demand, right? And obviously, that is a way to look at it. But even when you peel back the inflation, there's actually still been growth. We're actually higher now, even in real dollar terms, than where we were at the height of the Great Recession. Now, it too is is holding steady, if not slightly down, because we kind of project, even though inflation might subside a little bit this year, it's not going back to (laughs) zero or anything like that. That is one way to look at it. But I think the other way to think about inflation is how does that impact investment decisions? So if I'm a private developer and I see what's happening from an inflation perspective and I'm thinking about you know what my cap rate might be on a project versus what am I getting from a lending perspective from a bank, in some cases we're seeing these projects being underwater by 100, 150 basis points on day one. And so that does tend to slide those projects to the right and delay them. However, I think it's one of those things where the inflation itself is not so much the issue, it's the volatility in inflation. Meaning that we've seen high rates before. I mean, in the 80s it was double digit. Um, So what we need to do is kind of get to a point where there's not as much fluctuation or change and people sort of come accustomed to it. Sort of like when you're climbing Mount Everest, right? Yeah, the air gets thinner and thinner, but they have these base camps, and people just kind of get acclimated at those base camps, and then they can kind of move forward. And I say the same thing on in an inflation perspective. It's just part of the territory, but it gets to a point where we become kind of acclimated to it, things work out, and then demand continues.
0: Where it's just sort of baked in. That's right. So, Jay, you smiled when you talked about the bulls and the bears, but I, I would be curious as to how you would define that for 2024. Yeah,
1: so let, let's start with the bull markets. You know, let's start positive. If there was ever a bull that ever existed, it is absolutely manufacturing. Manufacturing construction grew by almost 80% in 2023. Now, I haven't been around too long, but I've been around long enough, I guess. Uh, started with FMI, like, yeah, as you know, probably 25 years or so. I have yet to see any segment grow that much in one year, this is, when I say 80%, you know, it's like 78, but let's just say 80% for round numbers. To put that in perspective, manufacturing represented 5% of total construction for the last several years. It now represents one out of every $10 spent in this country. So that's a big, I say, I mean, doubling its share is no small feat, right? Especially when you're talking about now a $2 trillion market, right? Because we've seen a lot of growth over the years. So that's one that would say would absolutely stands out uh, from a growth perspective. But then if you think about some of the other areas where we would consider, you know, there's still to be bull markets. I mean, water wastewater uh, continues to be one of those markets that we see. A growth in particularly when we see uh, more concentration of activity in some of these sort of metropolitan or kind of expanded megapolitan areas but even in support of that industrial uh, a lot of people don't recognize that like private water if you want to call it that to support some of these major uh, semiconductor plants data centers whatever it may be some of the local municipalities just don't have the ability to supply the utilities they need and so this private is one piece of it. And so those would be areas, you know, that we, there's others, but those would be kind of some of the main ones. Uh, unfortunately, like on the bear side, you say, okay, well, where are we going to probably see contraction? Well, we continue to see, obviously, contraction in the office market, meaning like traditional office construction. And even multifamily, which, you know, has kind of been the darling of the industry for several years, is probably headed into, I would say, at least a two, maybe even three-year contraction you know, over time. And it's not because people don't still want to live in, in apartment buildings or other multifamily type of uh, facilities or, or building types, and we still have a housing issue and all that. It's just that we almost built so much capacity in so many markets that we're just sort of like catching up to that. But those would be some of the ones that really stand out to me.
0: That's helpful. And you, you kind of touched on it, but just the two to three year contraction coming off of what was sort of an unprecedented run up around multifamily. Switching gears a little bit, as, as part of your work with clients and, the, and your team's strategy work with clients, you almost talk to th- thousands of owners in a given year. I'm curious what you're seeing with respect to owner sentiment going into 2024.
1: As far as the sentiment goes in, uh, from an owner project owner perspective going into 2024 I, mean, I hate to, you know, use the cop out of well it depends, but unfortunately that's the best I can say. It really depends because we're talking public sector, particularly infrastructure. I mean, there's almost I would say in some of the public agencies and representatives from those public agencies I've spoken with almost a concern of how are we going to manage the volume of work that we have. And we're talking about billions of dollars in new spending and so how do they not only manage a project but maximize that money as much as possible. It's just, it's almost this just amazing amount that they're trying to figure out that well, there's so much to do and what do I prioritize first. Versus on the private side as I mentioned earlier, so how do I make the fundamentals work? How do, how do I get the pro forma to work? So you're talking about two people existing in the same time and having two completely different views of things. But I think the, the bigger thing that we should be thinking about from an owner perspective and the more intriguing conversations I feel like I've had is talking about how their business models are changing. And that has obviously huge implications for the AEC industry because as their business models change, as the means in which they deliver services or produce things, whatever it may be that represents sort of their their business, even if we're talking about a public agency, we are entering a period where I see just considerable flux and shift in how that is occurring that as AEC participants,
0: we have to be
1: prepared for.
0: Can you elaborate on some of the some of the business model shifts that you're seeing?
1: Yeah, I think the the one that really stands out to me, this both probably easy to illustrate but also underscores this really significant change that we're talking about is in healthcare. So, healthcare construction, if you look at our forecast, it shows Positive growth. It's not setting the world on fire, but it's positive. But if you look at it in terms of how are healthcare services being delivered in this country, a whole different picture emerges when you look below the surface. And this is what I mean by that. So, healthcare construction in the United States is really represented by three types of, of product, right? So we have hospitals, which is generally the first thing most people think of. There's medical office building, which would include, you know, doctor's offices and clinics, but also outpatient care, uh, surgical centers, you know, those types of things. And then there's specialty care. So nursing homes, behavioral health, uh, memory care units, you know, all those types of things. So those are your three, three categories. So historically, Hospitals have represented minimum, say, two-thirds of all healthcare construction. But let's just peg it at two-thirds to 70%. Medical office building, though, while hospital construction is still very high and it's relatively flat, medical office building has exploded to the point that by my estimation, by 2027, medical office building construction spending will exceed hospital construction spending for the first time and so again hospitals will have gone then from a share of sixty six percent down to more like forty percent so the question is well why would we see this huge increase in medical office building and hospitals just holding steady well because the delivery of healthcare is following this pattern of generalized to specialized to personalized, and what I mean by that is a hospital is where I go if I need to, you know, fix a broken bone or birth a baby, right, and everything in between. But now we're seeing where it's getting more to very specialized services. So if I want my hip replaced, there's an orthopedic center that specializes in doing hip replacements as much as they can, as often as they can, and cranking them out. But I think the next evolutionary stage, and I wish I had a crystal ball to tell you this is what the facility will look like, but it will eventually move beyond even the medical office building side. So if you use drugs as an example, aspirin is a very generic drug. It's a very good drug, but it's like a hospital, right? It can reduce my fever. Uh, It can be pain relief. It can be a blood thinner. It's good for a lot of different things, but no one thing in particular. Well, now we have very specialized drugs for very, you know, specific issues. You know, you watch TV and there's drugs for, you know, put your favorite name in there for a very specific issue, right? But now we're even moving beyond that sort of specialized, where it's a drug, because we moved from small molecule therapies to biologics to produce these types of drugs, but the next frontier is in the genomics and in the gene therapy. Now we're not talking about a specialized sort of therapy or way to treat an illness. We're talking about something at the Scott Winstead level, the absolute DNA. Now it is not for a certain group, it is for a individual. And just like we're seeing that, I absolutely believe that we'll see the same transition from a healthcare, say, facility or construction perspective. Again, I don't know what it looks like, but there will be some new evolution of this, no doubt, in the next 10 years.
0: Where else do you see the biggest risks over the next three years, as well as the biggest opportunities over the next three years?
1: Well, I I think the biggest risk over the next couple of years And this probably, I don't know if this is going to answer the question the way you think I was going to answer it or not, is not paying attention to where the market is headed. And I'm not talking about overall demand, I'm talking about these examples like in healthcare, these evolutionary changes. I truly believe that we are in the midst of a major, major shift from an economic, sort of societal, whatever it may be, however you want to describe that, that is truly redefining the landscape. And so if we're playing yesterday's game, it will pass us by much faster and put us at a much greater risk than if I were doing this, say, 10 years ago or even 20 years ago. The rate of change is so different. And the rate of new things being introduced to me, that's where the greatest risk is. It's not that our business goes away. It's just we weren't paying attention to where the value is and what is being demanded. So that is, that's probably my greatest concern in terms of where the risk is.
0: I want to hold, you mentioned where the value is. and I want to hold that thought and come back to it in a, in a minute. If you, if you go back to the healthcare example, which I think is a great way to illustrate your point around just there's the overall monolithic market and then there's all the subcomponents that make up that monolithic market. What are the other segments That you see that have similar types of shifts uh, happening within them.
1: Well, I mean, there there there's some that were probably easier to describe, like healthcare, and there's probably some that are going to be a little bit more challenging to describe. But let's start with an easy one. So offices, you know, data centers are by definition, according to the census, part of the office. But that's an evolutionary change. In terms of how the segment definition, the segment definition. I would argue, though, yes, a data center is absolutely an office. You and I have talked about this before. If you go to an office building 100 years ago, a lot of the activity was clerical data filing, data manipulation, that sort of thing. That's, in my opinion, and I'm not a tech expert, but I would say, for my limited uh, knowledge, that that is what occurs in a data center. It's just now a digital workforce instead of a human workforce. So that'd be an easy one. I'd say the healthcare one's made more like, let's say it's in the middle, at least. To make me feel happy about myself right Right. and then the more challenging ones are where there's multiple things occurring at the same time so there i would talk about heavy civil so you think about in terms of what we're seeing from an energy perspective so we have a a grid that is old it is large it is really not um predictable in many ways now from what we've seen and we had you know I can't remember how many, a couple hundred, you know, large-scale outages, you know, in the last couple of years. I think it was less than 20, 20 years ago. That's a huge issue. But now you're having, you know, things like EV and battery storage and new ways to uh, produce and generate energy. At the same time, we're saying, again, from this urbanization know more concentration in fewer areas and with the autonomy of vehicles so I can see where that's a little bit more difficult to show where these shifts are because it's multiple components to it but it's a change in transportation as well as a change in how that that power is generated for that transportation how it is managed that is really again going back to more of an autonomous type of uh, functionality to the infrastructure if you will that doesn't exist today.
0: That's a really helpful perspective. We touched on the risks that you see over the next three years, which I like the way you frame that in terms of just not paying attention to what's happening underneath the surface. Flipping that around, where do you see the biggest opportunities over the next three years?
1: So the opportunities are actually in some ways the other side of the coin, if you will, of what we're seeing in this change. Because you know whether it's the delivery of certain types of services or how we're producing things, are changing, at the same time those project owners, as those lines get blurred in terms of the, let's call it the product, right, what's, what's being designed and built, those lines are being blurred in terms of what the expectation or the willingness to consider is from different stakeholders. You know, what we've seen in the past, obviously, things like design build you know, that kind of started to blur some of those lines between, well, what does the the architect engineer do and what does the the contractor do? But it's even expanding beyond that. So for me, when I see the opportunities, it's not only to get obviously on the ground floor of some of these major changes and the types of buildings and infrastructure we're doing, but it's in how do I interact with a client? You know, how am I able to bring solutions To the problems that they're facing that put me in a position of essentially being able to offer more than just the management of a project, right? I've become almost like an advisor to their business practices. It just happens to be the physical space within which those services occur or, from a heavy civil perspective, how I meet the needs of a changing demographic in technology.
0: So you mentioned value a little bit ago and that's probably a good segue into the question around value migration. So as you think about some of the trends we've talked about so far, how are those trends really influencing value migration as you see it?
1: Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about two examples that I think might illustrate what we mean by value migration. So we'll do one as a product and we'll do one as a service. So on the product side, there is a, a masonry product coming out uh, that has replaced cement with algae. Okay, so you think about that, that, that's not an incremental change. This is a major innovative leap, if you will. And so this is part, now this is a, obviously a, a much further expansion of value migration. Now, but think about this. So if I have this product, this, this, this masonry unit that is now using algae instead of cement, to the right project owner, that is of tremendous value because it's sustainable, cement is a energy intensive product to make, again, for the right owner, all of a sudden I have really put something out there that is of tremendous value to them. From a service perspective. An example here would be what we're seeing some uh, construction managers testing from an artificial intelligence perspective on pre-construction, where they're incorporating technologies, whether it's through a combination of generative design as well as historical cost databases, et cetera, to be able to put those together into models and, and using artificial intelligence and other things. In order to respond to, you know, requests from owners for help with pre-construction and budgets at a much faster rate than what they could before, right? So it's an ability to, one, uh, reduce some of the effort that it takes from a pre-construction standpoint, but then it's the added value to the owner of the, it's getting to them faster and I can ask different questions, I can make modifications, and I'm not waiting weeks, I'm waiting seconds to get those responses back.
0: Something I'm always curious about Jay is just what are I mean, what are the questions we're most frequently hearing from clients these days when they're coming to you and saying hey Jay can you help with X what, what is X? What are those two or three things that you hear all the time?
1: Well I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier that with a flat market you know what do you what do you do to manufacture growth and where I sit in the organization that's really the question that I'm fielding more than anything, which is how do we diversify the business into those areas that will have uh, not only growth near term, but really sustained growth. And, you know, we've we've talked about the analogy before of, you know, if I'm, I'm going down this road and it might be a good road, but it's a dead end and there's no off ramp. You know, <laughs> how do I ensure that you know, well, as long as I'm on it, I'm doing good, but how do I make sure there's another road that's got a longer you know, trajectory to it that I can, I can be in? So that, that question of you know, diversification and portfolio diversification has become really big. I would even say that we're fielding more questions about geographic expansion than we did during really the years following the Great Recession, which that was, everybody was wanting to figure out, how do I move from this market to that market? And it's not the typical, I want to go to, you know, fill in the favorite city or flavor of the month. It really is thinking in terms of where do I need to be across the country and what markets do make sense given the type of work I do. But there's also diversification from a segment standpoint, like what we were talking about earlier, the bulls and bears. Like if I'm not in manufacturing, can I get into manufacturing? If I'm healthcare, do I need to do more medical office building? And the most important thing in all of that is they're truly under, trying to understand, which I think this is a positive in all of this, is they're trying to understand, well, what is it that the project owners in those markets are really buying, right? In terms of how would I position myself? I think that's probably one of the, the things I've learned the best over the last you know, 20-something years is how you know, whether architects or engineers or, or contractors really trying to understand it's not just me saying what I do well, but the ones who do it exceptionally well are the ones who are able to translate that to, but what does that mean for me, the owner, and what I'm trying to accomplish?
0: Jay, as you kind of draw the comparison to the post-Great Recession, I'm curious. My read back then was it was more reactive. You know, clients were reacting to the market conditions, saying, gee whiz, my market's down. Looks to not be active or healthy for some period of time. There's got to be a better opportunity over here somewhere. What I hear you saying here is that this is more proactive and not necessarily that my market is bad or I'm saturated in my market. It's just people really using a position of strength to leverage where should they be long-term based on where some of these trends are taking them. Is that accurate?
1: That's a great point to make because you, you could say that, well, the Great Recession was no fun for anybody. But at least there were lessons learned, and you're absolutely right. I, do, I, I could tell you, and it's a great point, I didn't really think about it, that the questions then about diversification were absolutely reactive. It was knee-jerk, you know, I'm in this market that's down, tell me how to get in this market before they even knew if that was a good market to be in. And now it is more proactive and I think partly because, like I said, the market's sort of flat, right? There is some hesitation out there. I think there's some cautious optimism. You look at some of the indices out there. I mean, they're they're not really much above 50 or they're just a little bit below 50. So it's sort of this cautious optimism and market stability. I wouldn't call it market strength. Okay. And so it, I think it has afforded people the opportunity to be somewhat more proactive. And so it's not just is this a good market to to be in because there's demand? But how does that market operate and do I have a story to tell?
0: Well, the sort of butchered term in consulting is trusted advisors. So what you're describing is, you know, these service providers, be it the architectural, engineering, or construction firms, need to move into that trusted advisor position where they're putting themselves in the position of the owner and what their business and their business model and how they generate an earning stream, and then solving problems, you know, kind of reverse engineering, what does the building or the facility or the structure need to look like or do to be able to help them do that more effectively?
1: Exactly, because if you can't communicate both ways, let's say, and I don't mean the owner can communicate to me and I can communicate, but I mean I can communicate both ways and I can can think from the owner's perspective, how am I ever really going to frame the problem that they have? You know, it's like the hammer that sees everything as a nail. Right. But if I can frame the problem because I speak their language, it does put me in that trust. That's the only way to be in a trusted advisor role is because you can frame the problem for the owner or the client or whoever you're serving. So it's a huge, huge change.
0: Well, we've been talking quite a bit around, you know, the future and where we think things are headed. I'd love for, Jay, if you could kind of fast forward out another 10 years and think about you know what are the major shifts that you anticipate if you look at the A, the E, and the C industry? So sort of the built environment. Where do you see where do you see things headed long term?
1: Well, I always think it's best to start with sort of where we we've been because I'm a big believer that things don't just emerge as much as they evolve. So let's let's talk about megatrends. So megatrends, in my opinion. Those are things that are decades in the making. And so if you think about modern society and where we are, there's really four megatrends, in my opinion, that have sort of got us to where we are today. So one of those is the industrial revolution, right? Going from an agrarian society to an industrial society which then also gave rise to urbanization, people moving off the farm and moving into cities, right, and specialization and everything that came with that. Then individualism, you know, we used to grow up in multi-generation families, you know, and then we, wherever we were born, that's where we would live and die. And now people move all the time. And then the last part would be those sort of science and rational thought. You know, which gave way of challenging and and thinking of things you know differently than maybe we used to. And the reason I say those four represent megatrends is because megatrends, in my opinion, really change things. Really, just change two things, right? Or affect or impact two things. And the first thing it is is societal norms. Just how do we, how does our culture function? What is it that we value? You know, how do we interact? All that sort of thing. And then the second thing is just how is business conducted. And so the reason I say I think you have to go with the past and then kind of, you know, follow that trend forward is you can say, okay, well, industrialization, okay? Well, the last several years, we have seen the rise of digitalization, let's say. So in my opinion, the next megatrend that will have a shift over the next 10, 15 plus years is the merging of those two things and sort of this autonomous future, right? where I see the implications of those, because the megatrain in itself is not what's so important, it's what it infers or how it changes the landscape on the other side. So for the AEC industry, an autonomous future means that we might see the, you know, autonomy of different workflows, you know, where they're not separated, where design is totally you know uh, flows into the BIM model in an autonomous workflow which then flows into estimating and scheduling and procurement you know all these things into one single workflow and that's not to say that that's not a bad thing i don't i don't say things to scare anybody because it creates huge opportunities but if those things are true or could be true you know then i have to think about well how you know i have to take a look at my operations how am I structured as an organization? Am I ready for a change? Like what would be different? What kind of roles would I need? What kind of you know, other resources might I need? What, what doors would it open for me that maybe I, I didn't have access to before? If you think about the, um, the, er, the individualism, we you know, said that you know, kind of going to that individual, I think we're moving almost to this, like I don't have a term for it yet, but I'll call it virtualism. And I think this may be one of the most overlooked megatrends that I think has perhaps the largest impact on the AEC industry than any others. And what I mean by that is we've got an entire generation that sort of grew up buying things online, e-commerce, right? Where I go online and I pick out the color and the size and, you know, how much quantity and it's delivered and I never once have to talk to anybody. Versus, you know, we had to go to the store, you know, you want a new pair of socks, (laughs) you're going to the store. Well, maybe you used to call a catalog and you tell them on page 33, I want this particular item and do you have it in stock. But we still was a person involved. Well, now that we've seen this migration of, you know, just no human interaction in a lot of products. then what we're overlooking where I think we need to start paying attention is when does that migrate into professional services and it, and I say when I don't mean if it will in fact I think it already has migrated into professional services so think of the real estate industry right well now I can go on you know any of the online platforms and I can search for the homes that have four bedrooms and two baths and half an acre lot and or near a lake or whatever. I don't have to get a real estate agent necessarily for that. Now some people will argue, well, well, that's still a product, it's a house. Well, fine, I, I, I'll grant you that. But what about the legal profession? I would argue the legal profession is a professional services. Well, I can go online and I can put a will together and some other smaller documents and never talk to anybody. There's nothing that makes us special from an AEC industry that would prevent that same migration and that same type of, you know, uh, I'll say interaction or buying devoid of a human. Now I'm saying is it always that way? No, but would there be certain aspects of it where that's not only expected but perhaps preferred? Absolutely. But if we're not thinking about those things now, we're we're at risk because change will happen. I always think of that song Tom Sawyer by Rush. You know, changes aren't permanent, but change is. Everybody will eventually change or you'll just be left behind and you'll you'll cease to exist. But the question is, do I want to change faster? In fact, I would say your success depends on your ability to change faster than everybody else. You're either going to be pulled there or you're going to choose where you want to go to get there. So those would be some, as I mentioned, you know, with the rise of science and rational thought. We call it objective thought. I think we're moving to more subjective thought because there's just a preponderance of facts and data and information that you can pick and choose your own truth, right? And so what does that have to do with, you know, cultures and organizations and how we hire and things that matter in that regard? And the same thing with the urbanization. In my opinion, we're going from urban kind of societies to these more metropolitan or even megapolitan where this concentration of activity is sort of fewer and fewer areas, but sometimes in some ways larger areas. So the I-35 corridor between Austin and San Antonio or the I-85 corridor that links Atlanta to Charlotte to Raleigh, you know, all these areas, Southern California, wherever you want to go, these sort of distinct sort of combined concentrated areas, which has huge implications from competition, from funding, from what do we do from a, just, you know, housing and everything else from a social services perspective.
0: The thing that when you talked about virtualization that came to mind initially, I'd be curious, how, kind of fact check me on this if I'm thinking about it the right way, but if you think, think about uh, public-private partnerships in the U.S. versus European countries or other countries, you know, one of the challenges that we've had in the states has been because you've got the federal government, you've got 50 state governments, you've got 390 plus you know municipal and local governments, each of which has their own set of regulations, laws, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so there's no monolithic answer that you can just stamp out across the entire landscape and says, this is the P3 model. So down the road with generative AI, machine learning and whatnot, do you foresee that that gets easier because you won't need a human or multiples of humans to translate that myriad of red tape to be able to get a project out the door and, and execute and built?
1: I think so. I just don't know how long it takes to get there because, you know, technology is always just a tool. And it's generally a tool, in my opinion, to remove the friction in any activity. Right right? So a, you know, a pneumatic nail gun, it does remove some friction. It removes the friction that causes from, well, how long does it take to train somebody to, you know, hammer a nail correctly? Well, it's a lot easier to teach someone to pull a trigger than to know how to drive a nail, right? So the friction that removed was that that time and the skill set. The same thing that you're talking about What's the friction in a public-private partnership? It's exactly what you said. It's so many different parts. And it's not that the AI or these different kind of autonomous workflows or whatever, you know, however we want to describe it, is eliminating those things. Those things still exist. It just reduces the friction because it can do it so much faster and through so many more iterations than what it would take a person to do. And the friction is really not so much people don't like, you know, private partnerships. It's the effort that is required to do that is so difficult. That's the friction. And so if I can eliminate that, then,
0: yes, I think you're absolutely right. So, Jay, just to finish up, I'm curious, what do you find yourself consistently recommending to clients given what we've talked about so far?
1: I think it goes back to one of the things that we were talking about earlier, which is how are you going to manufacture growth? When the overall market is not going to provide it, how are you going to look below the surface to not only see where opportunities exist, but also how well do those opportunities fit the organization, meaning that they operate in a way that we like to operate, they have the same values we value, Uh, its ability to do what we do best, there is a fit for everyone. But it's really around those two things. Of really, you know, again, thinking about where can I sustain growth over the long haul if the market's not going to give it to me. But where within that do I find those potential sort of avenues of growth where I can sustain and create opportunities for a next generation that absolutely expects it.
0: So in other words, if the sands are shifting and and overall healthcare is growing, but at a moderate pace, but it's seismically shifting or transitioning from hospital construction to MOB construction over the next five years. That's a pretty significant trend.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I know it's kind of trite to say, but it's, I think really what I'm recommending people is in some ways is they have to define their business or their organization. You know, again, it's it's some of a, a used story, but, you know, with the kerosene lamp, right? And then the electric light bulb comes up. Well, the manufacturer of the kerosene lamps mistook their business as we were in the business of building or manufacturing kerosene lamps. No, they were in the light business. I don't think it's any different for our contractors. They can't say, oh, I'm a, I'm a healthcare contractor. Well, what does that mean? You know, it's gotta, you've got to think further. Like, I'm not making kerosene lamps. I'm in the light business. It's the same thing for, you know, the AC industry. I think because of the way things are changing and changing so quickly, a sober and very deep thought about what type of organization, what type of company we are is going to be absolutely necessary.
0: That's great. Well, Jay, it's great talking to you. Thank you for doing this again and look forward to your next return visit. Oh, my pleasure. As always, thank you for listening and please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss another episode.